please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. This is the very Word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was, this, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. May God add his blessing to the reading of its word. Would you pray with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the distinct privilege that we enjoy this morning that you do speak even by your word as we have just sung. And we thank you for the testimony of the gospel writers who have testified to the very words of Jesus Christ, both his deeds and actions, but also what he said. Holy Father, we pray that we would draw near to the risen Christ who is alive today, risen, ascended, and ruling. We pray your Holy Spirit would clear away all of the cobwebs and all of the confusion and all of the obstacles that we may have in our minds and that your Spirit would clear those away in such a way that each of us would receive your word as it truly is, not merely the words of men, but as it is the very oracles of God. We pray that you would cause us to have our hearts oriented to you once again. We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we have been so easily distracted, turned away from you, turned on to the cares and all of the follies of men. We do pray as we do lament the fact that our country continues to turn away from you. Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on this land rather than judgment. 
and that you would cause many across Canada to lay bare their sins before you and to repent of them and to plead for your mercy. Lord, there is great reason for judgment upon our wickedness, and yet you are a merciful God, so we plead to you in pleas for mercy that you would come and visit this land and awaken us. Lord, we thank you even for this church and the people gathered here wanting to hear your word. I pray, Lord, you would make us a holy people. We pray for other churches in this city that they would be not merely churches full of bodies, but they would be holy people. That the testimony of the Christians in this city would be so remarkably sterling and supernatural that others would puzzle and wonder at how it is that sinful creatures could be so different. We pray that you would make us shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And Lord, we do ask that you would have mercy upon us even here. We pray for those that are hurting in our church. Those, uh, I think especially of the children, children here who are, some of whom are suffering different ailments and difficulties, whether short-term colds and different things, or things that are longer-term and very hard for them. And yet, Lord, we see parents raising their children to know Jesus Christ, to teach them the gospel, to teach them how to pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for Sunday school teachers and children's workers even in this church. We pray that the children in this church would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved and that they would be then a hope even for all of us in older age as we see that there is a new generation holding forth the gospel. Lord, we ask that the gospel would spread to all nations even as the nations are coming to Canada. We pray that the gospel would go to the regions beyond, and that many who have never known your name would turn in repentance and believe and submit to Jesus Christ as their king. Lord, we pray that that would be so amongst us. And and so now as we hear the very word of the king, make us a loyal, humble, obedient people, even as we appeal to to the tender mercy of our monarch, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So come and meet us here in a powerful way, even by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This past week I saw... What I, what I thought was a, a beautiful picture in the midst of the horrors of World War II. And it, in that picture, it was, it was sort of a, a picture of beauty for ashes. The picture was of a medic, and he was serving with the Canadian Medical Corps. And this medic, he was, he was down on one knee, And he was bandaging the ankle of a child who was wearing then his 
tartan trimmed beret. And it was just such a sweet picture of this man who was there to help the British army, the Commonwealth armies, and yet he was helping, taking time out in this war-torn landscape to help this injured child. It was a, a small token of kindness in a context of violence. And that juxtaposition is where we begin in Mark chapter 14. Now if you let Mark run your church calendar, we would have been in Holy Week since about the middle of October, uh, if you're following the church calendar. And that's when we would have seen Palm Sunday, the, the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11. But Mark 14, all 72 verses of it, it's a massive, massive chapter, it contains the theological arrangement that Mark has put together of the last events and words of Jesus before he is condemned, before Pilate, he's crucified, dead, and buried, and the third day rise. So that's what chapter 14 is. Mark 14 begins with Jesus at Bethany. Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. When he was anointed, and this anointing was a beautiful thing, as he says, but he was anointed for assassination. He was anointed for assassination. The, the wisdom or folly of this beautiful thing done in a violent time was analyzed and criticized by people who saw it done, but it became an occasion for Jesus to say something that was recorded only in the Gospel of Mark when he said to this woman that we just read about, she has done what she could. Now before we get to the cost of royal perfume in the first century, we need to see something which is, I think, quite a bit darker and is something that has continued since Cain murdered Abel. We have to start with the plot to murder Jesus. Verse 1 said, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, let there be, lest there be an uproar from the people. John MacArthur said, quote, Betrayal, abduction, physical abuse, and a torturous, agonizing death. Read that in a morning paper, and you know what the label you'd give it. Cold-blooded murder. Interesting how we don't see the crucifixion in those terms. Yet the death of Christ couldn't fit the definition of murder any better, unquote. For Mark chapter 14, we see that this had another feature besides being first-degree murder. It was very much that, but there was something more. It was, by all accounts, a political assassination. It was a political assassination. During public ceremonies, 
the public officials of Judaism were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So basically, the context here is that the power of the state had to be applied by a secret judicial imprisonment where Jesus could be murdered and all of his political power murdered with him. That's what's going on. One commentator noted the political fear, saying the possibility of riot was too great. For it says in verse 2, not during the feast, let there be, lest there be an uproar from the people. So this is the threat. These guys are politically calculating. They want to they do this. They want to murder this guy and take him out. Now, today, there is this debate about whether the church should be political or not. I, you might be one of the people, there's some people in the church that think I, I'm talking, I talk too much about politics in sermons. Maybe you, others might think I don't say enough. But we become confused about the question because we forget the church has always been political and the state's view of our Lord and Savior was that he was a political opponent who needed to be removed. Killing the king of kings in a coup d'etat. That is what they were about. They would not submit to this king. Now at this point, before I get too far along here, I have to note a teaching point. And sometimes it's tough, you know, when you're preaching through Mark, it'd be easy to just get into all the technical details and put you all to sleep. But there is something important here, and it is the relationship between Mark's account, John's account, and Matthew's account. Now, I believe that Mark is not referring to a similar anointing which Jesus received in Luke chapter 7 from a different woman, a woman of the city, what today we would call a sex trade worker. So in Luke 7, that woman anointed Jesus, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. It was a powerful, very very compassionate, very liberating moment for that woman. And it is a a reminder just to say, you might be here and just got to reckon with the fact, do you need to be forgiven of your sins? Jesus has that on offer. But in this act of this unbridled devotion from this woman, it's similar to then what happens in Mark 14, which I think is a different woman. So I, so I think the woman in Mark 14 is not the woman in Luke 7, but rather it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. That's how we've, we find out about Mary from John 12. So instead, John 12, Matthew 26, and Mark 14 refer likely to the same event, which would mean that the anointing at Bethany was done by Mary, the sister of Martha, though she's not named here in Mark. So just to kind of say who's, who's who in the zoo. Bethany 
was the staging ground just outside of Jerusalem. It was kind of the suburb, the staging ground for Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And Jesus would go into Jerusalem, then he'd go back to Bethany, he'd go into Jerusalem, and and in this constant back and forth. But it was at Bethany is where this anointing occurred. And then as Mark puts it very simply in verse 3, while he was at Bethany. So it's a little bit indefinite, but it's during that time when he was at Bethany. So as evil men plotted the political arrest and assassination of their rival, God was orchestrating some profound changes. Changes in people's hearts. He was preparing praise for himself from his people. And then as Peter later preached at Pentecost to even some of these political assassins who would have been there in Acts 2, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.32, you crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You can call it Calvinism if you want. If you don't like that word, I don't really care. Um, it doesn't really matter. Throw it away, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that Jesus always wins. Jesus always wins. And you can live in denial, or you can accept it gladly. But that's the choice before you today. Jesus always wins. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nevertheless, those who had plot to kill Jesus were responsible for their wickedness and condemned accordingly. That is the context. It's political assassination. And yet, into this, into this violent and dark and evil, all these evil motives, into that context, then you have one of the most beautiful pictures of mercy and love and devotion and relationship. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Bible. What was this act which this woman chose to do? You've got to think. This woman, we know to be Mary, you know, this Jesus is the object of an assassination plot. If, you know, if you're in kind of the political turmoil and you know somebody that you have a relationship with, they're the object of an assassination plot, chances are you want to get away from them. You don't want to be near them. You don't want to be collateral damage. Maybe it was a good time to get some distance between Jesus and your family. So the family of Lazarus, who we're told in John 12 were in attendance. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But this woman, we understand from John 12, Mary, the sister of Martha, took the ointment. And this ointment 
is probably what we would call a luxury good. It was a product that was ridiculously expensive. It was crazy expensive. If the calculation of verse 5 is correct, it would have been equivalent to a year's salary. A year's salary. So think of spilling a bottle of perfume that costs not a thousand bucks, but say a hundred thousand. You know, you can you can make a down payment on a on a place to live, or you can spill something on the ground. Like that's how extravagant it was. It wasn't just kind of within proportion. It was just way over the top. And that is the point. The point is that it was an apparently ridiculously wasteful extravagance. But of course, Mary didn't just spill it. If she spilled it by accident, you'd feel stupid. But she didn't just spill it out. She poured it over the head of Jesus, verse 3. And that's why it is called an anointing. It was the kind of perfuming that only kings would get. Only they could afford such luxury. Only royalty was entitled to look and smell so amazing. It's interesting, I... I was in the hospital waiting room on Friday afternoon. I had to go get something checked out. And so I brought a book, which you have to do when you go to the Emerge. And I was reading the ancient Roman historian Suetonius. That's the kind of things I do for fun. (laughs) I was reading the life of Julius Caesar. I had three hours, so. Uh, Suetonius, he said that in Rome in this time, by law... Only the upper classes were allowed to wear perfume. Only they could wear jewelry or pearls or that hyper-luxurious purple clothing. On a military campaign, Caesar crossed a river holding his purple cloak in one hand above the, above the water because he didn't want it to get wrecked. Now, the point is not Julius Caesar, but the point is that Mary was treating Jesus in this way because she thought he was the king. He was the king. And he was worthy of lavish, extravagant, unbridled luxury. It was completely without inhibitions. And so this is where then the songs that we sing built off the Psalms of anointing where we sing, crown Him, crown Him Lord of all. Well, He's entitled, He is the King. Yes, but how is it that I can then express that He ought to wear that crown? I sing, crown Him Lord of all. Or, holy, 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 There is none besides Thee perfect in power, in love, 
and purity. There's nobody like him. In other words, she didn't hold back. She didn't hold back. She didn't calculate. She didn't do kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, okay, so 100000 worth of perfume. There's Jesus. Jesus is going to get whacked, as they say. You know, like, maybe I just better save this, you know, for my own life savings here. No calculation, no cost-benefit analysis. She didn't hedge her bets. You didn't think of it. She, she, she let all of her life's devotion pour out. It's interesting. She, she didn't take the topper off and pour some out. She broke the bottle. She broke the bottle. It, it, you know, if she's a, a warrior, which we, in my house we talk a lot about warriors. If she is a warrior, I mean, she would have burned the boats. You're not going back. That's it. She would, you know, it's taking your sword out and throwing away the scabbard. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, there's no going back. This is it. I'm reminded of a song I learned at college. It's a song I, I found out. It was, it was written by Simon Merrick. He was a pastor in India who was influenced by the missionaries from the revivals in Wales. And Merrick's simple song had, had a threefold refrain. It said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Mary wasn't turning back. But others, of course, verse 4, were indignant. If Mary had that kind of money invested in the ointment, why did she waste it? Why was the ointment wasted like that, they said? Of course, this is the fundamental viewpoint of every non-believer toward the Christ follower. Like, that's how people think. Why, why waste your Sunday morning? You, you, know, you know how they're thinking. they're thinking. What are you doing here? Why are you wasting your time here? Why waste your Sunday morning? Why waste your hard-earned money on tithes to the church? Why waste your kids' opportunities by dragging them to Sunday school or to youth group? You're, you're, you're limiting your kids' career by having them here, you know, think of your hockey career or whatever it might be. Why waste your potential by staying faithful to your spouse or saving yourself till marriage? Why waste your time loving the people that drive you crazy? I mean, that is what we do in the church here, isn't it? We all drive each other crazy and we all love each other despite it. That's the, only, only in the Lord can we do that. You don't find that anywhere else. The world says you are wasting your life. You're wasting it just like Mary was wasting all of that ointment. 
But now, like verse 5, everyone always has a better answer for your time, talents, and treasure than to give them to Jesus and his kingdom. They always have a better answer. So sure, Mary could have sold the luxury perfume and do that most noble of things, give it to the poor. Right? Now John, it's interesting, John 12 identifies the ringleader of this big concern for the poor. It says over in John 12, you can turn there if you want or listen, John 12 verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, you know who Judas, Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him said, verse 5 of John 12, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then John adds in verse 6, not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Now, this would be a wonderful time to make a political commentary, but I'll just leave that to one side people's concern for the poor who are actually thieves. See, the problem is Christians can be gullible. You never should automatically assume that just because somebody is criticizing your devotion of Jesus that they're criticizing you in good faith. Because very often, the Bible, certainly my experience has taught me that people will scold you as they did to Mary. They will scold you because they don't like how your devotion to Jesus makes them look. They don't like it. The more on fire for Jesus you are, eh, it exposes them. The more light that you want to bring to a situation, they're like, "Uh, I want to get out of the light. I'm going to badmouth your light. I don't like your light. Because then it starts to expose, as John says in John 1, that their deeds are evil. That's why they reject the light. They don't want their stuff exposed. And that's kind of what's going on here. 1 John 4.4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them. And they malign you. How come you're not, how come you're not doing the bad stuff I'm doing? And then they badmouth you. They malign you because you want to be lavish in devotion to Jesus. So they scolded Mary. It's a remarkable, a, a remarkable tension here where on the one hand, you've got scolding, and on the other hand, You've got such devotion. But this is where it's really important, for each person here, it's really important to consider this, that it doesn't really matter what others think about you. What really matters is what does Jesus think about you? Do you know that? Like, are you aware? Are you clear? Do you know and understand what Jesus thinks about you? 
Does he view you as one of his own blood-bought? Or does he see you as a stranger? One or the other. But if you know that he sees you, and he has said, yes, you're a child of God, you're a co-heir with me. If Jesus has that view of you, that's, that's all that matters. If you are accepted by the Father because of Christ's own love and sacrifice for you, who cares what anybody thinks? Really. And so Jesus said of Mary, verse 6, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Imagine that, that Jesus is looking out for you in such a way, just like Mary, that his view of other people would be, leave them alone. Leave this, this, this one belongs to me. Leave them alone. You feel like you're all alone, nobody's looking out for you? If you have Christ, he's looking out for you, and he'll, he'll do things so that people leave you alone. And you think, oh, well, nobody's leaving me alone. It's, you know, it's hard in the world. Yeah, but if Jesus is there, He isn't going to let anything happen to you that's outside of His scope. He knows exactly what's going on. But Jesus, He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. At this, I'm calling it this unfiltered devotion from Mary to Jesus toward her king is a beautiful thing. And, and so we have to ask the question, well, what is beauty? You know, I mean, I know today beauty is supposed to be completely subjective and there's no criteria of beauty so that so much of what's going on in our society is, is just straight up ugly and then we're forced to say, oh, you're, you've got to say it's beautiful when it's not, it's ugly. But what's beautiful, what is beauty, it it is always meant what was fitting. What was fitting. What had, for example, proper proportions. The correct scale. What had symmetry. What is attended to with great care and attention. And so, when you think of it in those terms, in terms of proportion and scale and symmetry and great care and attention. When you think of it in those terms, well then, pouring out your life savings in wasteful worship on the eternal Savior King, to do that, well actually, that is proportionate. Or, it's not proportionate, but at least it's attempting to be. That was attempting at least to have the right symmetry. That was attempting to have the fitting care and attention which attempts to match the majesty of the object. This is a problem for most of us. We have no sense of proportion and scale. We say we believe that Jesus is the King, but it's kind of like, yeah, it's one of many things I'm interested in. Well, no, if he is the king, 
if He is the Savior, if I'm saved from hell and damnation, oh Lord, what? There, like there's not enough that I can give in order to be proportionate, in order to attempt to be proportionate. And so what she did in taking the year's salary worth of ointment and wasting it on him in this pouring out on him, it was, I would say, objectively beautiful because Jesus is objectively majestic. He is or he isn't. Well, if he is, then that is objectively beautiful because it's an attempt to be proportional in that worship. I mean, obviously the act is dumping this stuff. I mean, I've changed oil on tractors like for many, many years, and I've had oil like dump on me because I'm clumsy. And it, you, know, you, get the, you know, you get the pan and it's spilling oil in your hair. I mean, you know, that's why farmers wear caps, right? It really is. But, but I mean, it's, it's a mess. It's an oily mess. And yet here she's pouring it out, and it's messy, it's personal, but it's total. I mean, you think of like the extravagance of the temple sacrifices. Messy, very personal, and finding this sacrifice that's a substitute, but it's total. The animal sacrifice, it's dead. It's dead. That's the act. It's messy, personal, and total. The perception... Well, others are looking at it and their, their, their perception is, well, it's a waste. They're making calculations. Well, oh, that, I know that. I know that ointment. I know how much that costs. I don't think that was a good use of your time and resources. You know, I don't, I don't, you know that's the perception. The materialist response, or if you would like, the socialist response, oh, well, give it to the poor. No, you can't have that. That, that, that's wasteful. No, it's, it's got to be redistributed. But then the beauty of the beautiful thing is that this lavish devotion to Christ is truly fitting. It's fitting. It fits. It fits. If He is merciful, it is fitting. If He has authority to forgive, it is fitting. If He welcomes the devotee, it is fitting. If His worth is higher than anything else, it is fitting. And although Jesus had great care for the poor, don't need to take the time to go into all the evidence of Jesus' care for the poor and the downtrodden. I mean, He's at Simon the leper's house. You know, He's a leper. He has great care for the poor, but what was more important, more urgent, more fitting at that moment, what was more fitting was to give him unfiltered devotion and give it to him exclusively. That was what was fitting. Verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not Always have me. 
See, people get confused about this stuff because they think, oh, well, there's all these good works that we ought to be doing. And giving to the poor is a good work. But it is not the greatest work. The greatest work is looking to Christ and devotion to Christ and worship of Christ and being at the feet of Christ and holding up Christ and seeing Christ magnified and treating Christ as holy and treating Christ as the royal king and doing all of that unfiltered, uninhibited devotion. That is the greatest thing. So now, now, the question is, do you, do you have a fitting devotion to Christ? Is it fitting? If he, you know, does, I mean, a simple way, does, does the devotion that you may have to Christ does it even attempt to line up with the symmetry and the proportion of Christ in all of His risen glory? Does it even attempt to do that? Or is, as David Wells has said regarding evangelicals in the 20th century and certainly in the 21st, is it the case that God rests very lightly and inconsequentially upon us. It's not not a big deal. I don't feel His weight upon me. Well, if I feel the weight of His glory upon me, then my devotion to Him ought to be in some sense fitting And in so being fitting, it ought to be beautiful. I I think all of us, if you're then being honest, myself included, we're all going to admit that our devotion is not in proportion, not fitting as it ought to be. The question is, do you want want it to be more beautiful? Do you want it to be more fitting? Do you want to want to? Every soul here, do you want to want to? And if you don't want to, you won't. But if you want to want to, He welcomes you. Now verses 8 and 9, Jesus makes this, this tender thoughtful. It's an amazing comment. He says, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. I I think there are many people in this church that need to hear what Jesus said to Mary and realize it applies to you. There was no expectation that Jesus demanded more than could be given. There was no harshness from Jesus toward a lavish, even wasteful display of devotion. Jesus, although he's entitled to worship as the warrior king, nevertheless has such a deep, 
understanding of us, that he knows our frame, he knows our weakness, he knows our limits. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Another prediction of Jesus' own death. But notice verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. See, Jesus knew his gospel, his good news, which could only be secured by the resurrection. He knew that his gospel was going to go off. Like he, he hadn't even been crucified yet. He knows he's going to die. She's preparing him for burial. He's going to be assassinated. He's going to be put in the ground. He knows he'll rise. He knows he'll be ascended. He knows the Spirit will come upon the church. He knows the good news of the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. And everywhere where then his message is preached, this woman and her unfiltered, uninhibited devotion will go along with that testimony. Jesus knew this. I'll even say Jesus knew what we're doing this morning. Here, back then, he knew that this is what we'd be doing here in Calgary. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus could see into the future. He knew exactly each person here considering this woman and her devotion. He knew it before he was crucified. Before he was risen. Because he is truly the incarnate son. That's why. You see, when when Jesus says she has done what she could, this, this response... It dismantles any fatalism that you might have this morning. Because if you think living for Jesus, walking in his ways, living pure, all of that, oh, it's all impossible. Well, then you just don't understand Jesus. You don't understand him. As Peter, who is kind of the source for Mark's gospel, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's given us everything we need. He provides. It was Augustine's great insight, wasn't it? Whatever he demands, he provides. Command what you will, and will what you command. Yes, he puts demands on us, but he can also recognize she's done what she could because he's provided for her to have the heart to want to worship him in that way. She's done what she could. Jesus knew, as well, 
that there would then be a time of the gospel spreading, going into the whole world, and he knew that Mary's lavish devotion would be told then to everyone who hears that saving gospel. It's a remarkable thing. And I hope you see if you've been feeling the weight and crush of perceived demands. You need to hear the words that Jesus said. She's done what she could. But I close with an application to what I think, if I can divide everybody up into the three kinds of people who are here. There are three kinds of people. There's the people who've calculated. There's the people who have held back. And there's the people who have given up. Those who have calculated, those who have held back, and those who have given up. If you've calculated, like so many of these did in Mark 14 when they saw this devotion, let me tell you, if you've calculated, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your calculator's broken. Your calculator doesn't, can't account for infinity. Your calculator doesn't work with eternity. The eternal God, God the Son. And so if you're calculating and you want your best life now, then you you literally are a fool. I say that with great compassion, but you're a fool. And it's not that anybody else is clever. It's that Jesus is worth it And we come to him, pleading to him for mercy. So if you're calculating, there's no, I'm going to give this religion thing 10% of my life. It's not proportional. It's all or nothing. So if you've calculated, you're wrong. But secondly, if you're one of those who have held back, which is so many people here, myself, it's easy to hold back. It's easy, it's easy to want things, you're, you know, kind of do some things in your life your own way. You want to hold back. You don't want to be, you, you don't want to do all the things that you maybe know you ought to do. You don't want to give up the things you want to give up. You don't want to fight the sins that you know you ought to fight. You don't want to sacrifice in the ways that you know the Lord's calling you to, sac- to sacrifice. So you're, you've hol- you're holding back. Because you're afraid. You're afraid of the future. You're afraid of what might happen if you you don't hold back. You've got to kind of hold back in that kind of survival instinct. I've got to hold back. I I can't give myself completely over to what the Lord wants. I've got to kind of trust my instincts. But you've got to realize if you've held back, He is worth it all. He is worth it all. He is worth it all and more so. And when we don't see Him as worth it all, you will then start to hold back because you're trying to survive in a cruel world. It's always a question. kind of gets into the political question. When we rely on politics, I've always got to ask myself and think about this. Have I lost a sense of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, the King? Because I'm just, I'm starting to hold back on devotion that that's enough. 
and I start thinking, oh, i gotta, I got to get my survival instincts in gear here. He is worth it all. But thirdly, there are some of you who have just given up. You've given up. You've given up. You're just like, I, I, I'm not, I don't get it. Life's too hard. And you've given up. And I would just encourage you that faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that is sufficient. You, you don't have to do when Jesus says, done. You don't, have to, you don't have to try and do more, which is you're on some treadmill. And you feel, I can't, keep, I can't stay on the treadmill. I've got to give up. And he's like, get off the treadmill. But trust in me. Let him carry you. And so you trust in him alone. And Jesus will say, you've done what you could which the only thing you could do, which is to relinquish yourself and trust in Him. I'm reminded of another old hymn, 19th century hymn, um, that nobody really knows today. It says this, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee as thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Do you need to be made whole today? You just give yourself in uninhibited, unfiltered devotion to Him. Let's pray together. Loving God, we pray even now that your, your love would abound to us and that we would be made whole in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise and respond as we praise Him. Just a reminder. The newcomer's lunch just after the service downstairs. You're welcome to join us. But as Rob had us look at Revelation 7 to open up, I'm going to finish with Revelation 7, verse 15. For all of those saints, those believers, those who are giving uninhibited worship to the Lord, it says in Revelation 7:15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the hope of those
who give uninhibited devotion to him. Will you? Will you do that? Do so today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.